Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Friday, March 1st, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people and using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book, book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. It's a tool I've been using to great effects for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness, and if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon if you Tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. It contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1 on your phone, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I can then turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. 
We appreciate whenever anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention with this work is to be a service. And that's just easier to do if we know how things are landing for you. If you are unable to or choose not to call, you can still submit a comment or a question, a testimonial or an answer or a refutation by giving us and sending us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org and or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. And if we get a comment, a question, answer, or testimonial from you through the email, we will address that on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen to the archives for your feedback or input. Today's a Friday. That means we had a support group last night, and lots of... um, Good processing was happening, and I think we listened to one of the podcasts from the We Can Do Hard Things podcast with Glenn and Doyle, and we listened to the Lindsay Gibson um, discussing, answering people's questions, really, about how can you cope with or react to people who are emotionally immature and yet they're in your life and uh, they might be blood relatives, they might be in-laws, etc. And um, so lots of good discussion and um, just keep that in mind for future reference. Those support groups are still running on Tuesdays and Thursday night, absolutely free. If you or somebody you know is interested or you think somebody might benefit from that, please pass the information along to them. All the information you or anybody else would need to join that support group is available on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. So... That's all I've got to offer in the beginning of the session today. I'm I'm just just off of a very intense therapy session with somebody else and um literally trying to help people understand that we We carry the stuff that gets downloaded into us from when we're age, you know, zero to seven or eight or nine years old maximum. And we we download these things as though we're in a hypnotic state. We're really efficient, effective learners when we're young. And we don't even realize how much stuff we are absorbing. And we don't even realize at a conscious level some of the beliefs that we download and buy into. And then we get older and as we're living our lives, anything that resonates that same kind of energy brings that belief into activity in our minds. And we can be a very 
intelligent, high-functioning adult and have an internal dialogue that tells us we're screwing everything up or that we're ineffective or that we would never be able to do X, Y, or Z. And every time it gets activated, it feels like the absolute truth in our lives. And it isn't the truth, but it feels that way. So... That's why one of the most useful things we can do is what is being suggested in the way of mastery and start living from the realization that we really don't know much of anything. And much of the stuff that we think we know is quite literally just made up Um, unrealistic, trauma-based belief. And um, it's no more productive to follow those unrealistic, trauma-based beliefs and start acting on them than it would be to turn to a four- or five-year-old and ask him or her what you should invest in for your retirement account. There's just... Nothing good is going to come from us acting from our negative thoughts or our negative emotions or our negative beliefs that we hold deep within us. Area code 610, Susan. Hi, Dr. Tim. Quick question. Lindsay Gibson, we can do hard things. You didn't mention a number. Do you have a number of that, and do you recommend it? Yes, uh, I highly recommend um now they've done four episodes, and the the first two are numbers 263 and 264, and mm-hmm. they are titled Healing from Emotionally Immature Parents and Disentangling from Emotionally Immature People. Yeah. And then, and those are... Lindsay Gibson basically giving um, a class on emotionally immature people and parents and you know the impact of Mm -hmm. being raised with that and then most recently this week they did two more episodes episode 284 and 285 where lindsey gibson is coming back to answer questions from Mm. the listening audience because there was so much uh appreciation for and feedback from the episodes 263 and 264 Ooh, that aired wonderful. in the beginning of December. Yeah, <clears throat> good thanks. And one of the best things about those podcasts from my perspective is how clearly she talks about and delineates what you can look for, what you might experience, what you can expect when you're dealing with someone who is emotionally immature. And one of the next things that I appreciate about it is that she doesn't villainize those people. She talks about them as just people who didn't have very good parents or had very, very challenging life circumstances, and they didn't have the resources, internal resources, to deal with their emotional life in a mature way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it isn't let's blame everything on 
how I was raised or my emotionally immature parents. It's just how can I understand these patterns within me and or the patterns that I was raised with by my parents. Mm. And so I found it to be a very balanced perspective, some good information, Mm. even in, in the... Even in the one from you know the more recent episode, she's helping give some clarification about the difference between somebody who's emotionally immature and somebody who's narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Boy, so that would just be a tricky one. <laughs> it isn't that tricky, but you know, if you don't have any awareness of it, it would be tricky. But you know, the the, the short answer is that. Anybody who's narcissistic is emotionally immature. Right. But narcissism, you might, you know, view it as a special case of emotional immaturity with some yeah. harsher edges, etc. You said when you were talking about this podcast that they made a distinction between people that you could say goodbye to, you know, and family members are people you are really going to be with or have a relationship with and how to navigate that. That's where it gets really hard. Um, it would be good to have some, I mean, I do have some tools. I've been hugely helped with, by the tools for, for navigating a very hostile grandson uh, his circumstances are changing, and, and when he doesn't get money from us, basically, he insults us and bullies us. And um, I don't, so I have... I sure, hope that, I, sure hope, I sure hope that leads you to give him more money. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing, because he, he, he goes from this rather, you know, compelling portrayal of a a person with mild autism, he's just newly diagnosed and he's using it in ADHD. And this is why I can't do this and this is why I can't do that. And, but then when he gets to the point where he admits that he's terrified, then, of course, I, my heart opens right back up and I want to step up and say, well, let's work something out. And, of course, that has been a pattern. I'm, I'm a, a big enabler and... My daughter is too, and my daughter is the mother of this fellow. I've talked about him before, but anyway, listening to this might help a lot. Um, at this point, I have done what um, I've been listening to podcasts about narcissism because I think his father was one or is one, but he's no longer dealing with us directly and one thing you do is you go you gray rock which means you just go slack you have no response reaction to them you don't interact with them unless it's absolutely necessary and you do it in a very neutral state what a great idea everything is neutral anyway right so that's very helpful to practice that but you know i was telling you i wake up in the middle of the night and all the demons are out in force and I have to reinstate everything is neutral. Uh, he's on his life journey. 
let him do what he needs to do. You don't have to help him or fix him. All this junk, you know, it's a little litany that we go through, but these podcasts sound right up that alley and might be helpful. Well, and they don't have any pat answers. Right. They 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 do have some wonderful questions. And so, mm-hmm. you know, especially in this most, uh, the one that is second to the last that was published, they start talking about, okay, so even if these people are your family and you say and you only have to deal with them two or three times a year, but then think about what that means. If you're doing that with these people who have established abusive patterns with you, are you going to hold yourself to having interactions with them three times a year on the holidays? So they are your holidays. What sense does it make to hold yourself bound to them simply because of some blood relationship when Mm -hmm. they aren't able to or willing to change a pattern that you find offensive and abusive. What sense does that make? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And, and and so, you know, you might want to ask yourself why, why you're doing what you're doing if when you decide to keep exposing yourself to something that you find abusive mm-hmm. and or traumatizing. Yeah. So there's, there's really good questions around that and really mm-hmm. good descriptions of what it looks like and feels like to be dealing with somebody who's emotionally immature. And so then people can make better and more well-informed decisions about Mm. how to proceed in their life if someone they know, work with, or live with, or have as their blood relative fits in that category of emotionally immature. Right. So, Dr. Tim, I emailed you, but I emailed you about three minutes before the radio show, so you might not have gotten it. But my, I have a whole other question. <clears throat> Tim Bingham has been on many medications for anxiety and depression for many years, and they have side effects, you know, like um, making him sleepy during the day is the main one. But probably there are lots of other things that he's lived with so long that he thinks that's who he is. But he filled out something that he learned about online called, well, the website is retrainingthemind.com, founded by Annie Hopper. Have you heard of her? No, and um, that website isn't loading the way you sent it to me. Retrainingthemind.com? Yeah, it's it's either that you've misspelled it somehow or... Well, it's you know. retraining the mind, so it's just common words. You could right, but she's it's, the it's founder. It's not working. It's not working. That's so I'm going to try searching for, for her. Yeah, I'm going to try searching she's, for her. She calls it dynamic neural reef retraining systems, and you know, for the first time ever. Tim Bingham is excited about doing a program that will help him get off all his meds, all of them eventually. He was going to be very cautious about it, but he hasn't been willing to even consider it because 
the prospect of feeling the way he did before he got them is scary to him. And this has to do with creating new neural pathways, new thought patterns in the brain. And we've touched on that, and we do that with the tools. The tools do that. But he he is beginning to do a free trial where he's watching um, preliminary videos on what it is. But my question to you was, might you contact her to interview her, how great if you and she had a talk together. Well, I'll check in. I, I was able to search for her and find the website. I don't know what the problem is with the link you sent, but I do have the website up, and I'll check into it and um, and reach out to her and see if she's willing. Right. I'll look at the videos on it and see if there's something in it that I'm already familiar with or if it's brand new stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> How long has he been doing it? Oh, he just learned about it a few days ago. He's been working with a therapist called Mira Rubin who has her own system. She's another one you might want to interview. Great woman. I believe I've already interviewed her. Oh, yeah. Maybe you have because I talked. I, I had a few sessions with her. It just wasn't a great fit, that kind of work. And I feel as if I've put my plumb line in this, you know, these tools that you and Michael talk about. And so I tend to want to stay with this. But um she suggested this to Tim Bingham, and he somehow it flipped the switch. He's always been absolutely not. I'm not going to consider that. I need these. It's a chemical imbalance. It's I'm stuck with it. It's a family thing, and it's been going on for generations. True, true, true. Um, and so suddenly he's willing to do this, and I might even do it with him. I'm not sure. Just to. Know what he's doing and to be able to talk about it with him. But I'd be very interested if you, I was interested to see if you knew about her first of all, and if not, what we what you would think. I imagine you'd like what she does. She sounds wonderful. Great website. Lots of testimonials of people who have gotten past stuck points and illnesses too, physical stuff. I'll be happy to check it out, and I thank you for that uh, suggestion. As we mentioned from time to time, I appreciate those. I'm frequently asking people for <clears throat> titles such as that, books, techniques, yeah. et cetera, because that's one one thing is for my private practice. The other thing is for potential interviewees for the On Your Mind podcast hosted by Journey Stream right. that... I, I mentioned from time to time as a free resource to people. Yeah. And I think I mentioned on the Internet show that there's been some minor innovations in that so that now if there's been a, a database put together on a searchable spreadsheet. Oh, yeah, so if somebody comes to me now and right. says, 
what do you have about psychosis in young people or what do you have about medications, effectiveness or withdrawal? And we can type that in the search for it and then it'll pop up with whatever of the 155 or 57 interviews we've done might relate to that. And then I mm-hmm. can send people direct links mm-hmm. to those web pages that have that interview That's on very them. handy. Um, so, well, I have another uh, question, but if you want to get on with the show, this one can wait. It's just a general thing that I always think about. All right, what's your question? Well, Course in Miracles and the Way of Mastery say that and Albert Einstein says, we are not separate. And Christian Sundberg says, we choose to come, we chose to come to this plane to experience being separate. But if we are in fact not separate, even while we think we're separate, are we not porous to picking up all kinds of things that are happening all over the world even if we don't know about them, aren't we kind of getting, like we have antennae all over the place and they're collecting information, events, picking up emotions all the time. Wouldn't you say that's true? Probably, yes. And then, so the ticket is, so we're picking up something. What do we do with it? First of all, are we aware enough to be aware of it? And then are well, we triggered but, but the, by it but, when it Okay. So, so the first thing is no, most of us are not aware of it. Which is why we yeah. need teachings like this to wake us up to that. Mhm. And then the next thing you said is then are we triggered by it? And I would like to bring you back to something that Dr. Michael Rice may not agree with and may not talk about this way, but it has been extraordinarily helpful for me since this reframing of triggering came into my awareness five or somewhere in the last five or ten years. And that is, it's not the energy that triggers me. It's not what a person does that triggers me. It's not that my house mm-hmm. gets hit by a tornado that triggers me. It's not that somebody mm-hmm. calls me a a bad name that triggers me. The triggering is a a product of the interpretation that I choose and apply to that situation. I understand. Yeah. I also wonder what you do with things that are sort of creaturely shared, shared as our fellow creatures. For instance, what's going on in Gaza? A whole bunch of people were probably trampled to death trying to get food. So I read this, and in my gut, I just, I have a reaction. And it's inspired. If it's my garbage, yes or no, it doesn't really matter to me. The fact of it is, this is going on. This is an actuality and I am feeling it. And even if I didn't read about it, I would probably, on some subliminal level, since we're not separate, I would be feeling it. 
This is just okay, a lot to work with. But listen to this point, though. You're yeah. saying that you're feeling it, and you would be feeling it even if you hadn't read about it. Yeah. Right? Isn't that what you just said? I imagine I'd be feeling it because we're right. not separate. I'm not saying I do feel it. That's right, but that's what you're or saying I'm, is that you imagine you would feel it, okay? Here's yeah. the point. Yep. These things are happening all the time on this planet. Right. All day, every day. Yeah. And so it's only those ones that you find out about at a conscious logical level and then form some interpretation of that generate a response in you that's loud enough for you to register it at a conscious logical level. Yes, I'm agreeing with you. You know, there's all of these adages, don't ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. What happens to the least of you happens to the greatest of you. We're all connected. So at some level, Mm -hmm. yes, we are all diminished by everybody who goes to bed hungry. And we are all Mm -hmm. diminished by everyone who's, you know, murdered by somebody who's so wounded that they don't know how to get their needs met without hurting somebody else. And yet, Mm -hmm. only those that we have heard about at some kind of logical level and then formulated some kind of an interpretation about it are going to register a feeling response in us that we actually have awareness of. Mm -hmm. So yes, all of these things are affecting all of us. Mm. And yet most of the time it's happening at an unconscious level a subconscious level. It doesn't register with Mm -hmm. the conscious logical mind. I'm not aware that it's causing an upset in my stomach or back tension or a decrease in my immune system. I'm not aware of it most Mm -hmm. of the time. When I become aware of it because somebody reports it to me or I see it in a news story or any of the other ways that people come across this information, then I form an interpretation about it and then I pour my mind energy into that interpretation, now I'm actively creating a response pattern. Yeah, I that's that. what we're calling that's, that's what we're calling being triggered. Yeah. But it okay. isn't being triggered, it's the 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 impact of my choice of how to interpret and respond to the news that's come to my conscious logical mind. And that's not a trigger. It isn't a trigger. It's this. It, it it might you know set off a whole cascading um, series of re- responses in me physically and mentally and emotionally, and yet the minute I change my interpretation of the event, the 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 cascading series of responses changes. You know, here's no, no, no. Literally, literally, this happens. Here's one of the one of my favorite examples of this. I had a friend from college, and um, we grew up and became adults, and and we stayed in in contact. And he he lived about two two and a half hours away. And his ex wife called me and said, "Timmy." I need you to call Terry. He's not doing well at all. His father died a month earlier or whatever. 
and he's just so depressed, he's just not doing well at all. So I called Terry, and I said, um, how are you doing? He said, miserable. I'm, I'm, I'm drowning here. I said, okay, well, you know, let me, uh, let me come down and have dinner with you. Let's, uh, let's uh, sort this out. So about a week later was the first time we could get together. I went down to see him. I was expecting to find the same depressed, low-energy, woe-is-me person that I had on the phone four or five days earlier. I got there. He greets me with a big bear hug. Says, "Come on, let's go." I got the reservations at the. We get to the place. He sits down. He orders a drink, and I sit across the table from him. And I said, "You know, Terry, I got to got to say, this wasn't what I was expecting." He says, "Yeah, I know. I got I got to tell you what happened." He's a an outside salesperson, so he travels from mm-hmm. city to city, and since we had been on the phone, he had been to an, another city in the U.S. And as he was making his sales call to this large company, somebody he knew from college greeted him and said, hey, let's, uh, I work here, let's go to dinner. And so the guy sits down at dinner across from Terry, and Terry is in a funk from this depression, from the grief of his father dying. And the friend notices it and says, well, you know, you got to tell me what's going on with you. And Terry said, my dad died. The guy said, yeah, my dad died last year too. And and um, and Terry says, it's driving me crazy because everywhere I go, everything I see, it, I think I see him. I think I see him in a car passing me. I think I see a guy on the street walking with a hat, and I think it's my dad. And, he, and Terry says, this is driving me crazy. I think I'm losing my mind. And the friend across the table from him said, yeah, isn't it great it's like he's still here Uh and with that one reframe terry Mm. went from deep grief and depression and feeling like he was losing his mind to relief and gratitude and healthy grieving in that one moment he shifted Mm. his interpretation of what it meant that he thought he saw his father every time he turned the corner. Mm. And it dramatically changed. And this is years later now. It's never his his deep grief and depression about his father has never come back. It it was shattered in that moment when he changed his interpretation mm. of what it meant to see signs or symbols or images or have the fantasy that he was seeing his father. That's a fantastic now, story. Yeah, it's a real ahead. life story. We, but we all do it all the time. That's the point of a story like that—to wake us up right. to what's happening all the time. Every time I get angry because somebody comes up behind me and they tailgate me when I'm driving, <laughs> yeah, that's it's a because <laughs> I'm putting it—I'm putting an interpretation on it that leads me to to resonate within me the anger and fear and frustration from some other time in the past or some set of thoughts about I'm I'm the great and powerful Dr. Hayes and I shouldn't have to put up with this or whatever it is. It's just resonating Uh that. There are other times people tailgate me. I'm in a different mood. I say, well, I guess they're in a hurry. I hope their family's safe. I find a way to move over or... I slow down even more to motivate them to, to you know, pull around me. I try to give them space between me and the shoulder. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, 
if I put a different interpretation on it, I don't generate any upset. If I okay. choose an interpretation that says they have no right tailgating me and that's dangerous, and then I can generate all kinds of negative emotions and thoughts. Okay, what? Okay, I'm taking it back to the the reading of the news, and I can't imagine on this plane reinterpreting. I get what you're saying, but and I agree with it, but the, I'll tell you the only way I could reinterpret, and I'll tell you, but it seems as if that, the, the death of, what was it, 100 people or something, um, the only way I could reframe it is to go back to Christian Sundberg's book where he says, we come here to have these experiences, and these people are having these experiences in order to grow. And to us it looks horrible, but it's actually wonderful that they're getting this chance to experience this and grow, and we can't know how that might be. So then I can, I, I can reframe if I stretch my mind that big, and I'll do that. But the thought comes to me of how much vitality you have to have, maybe that's a bad thought. Actually, it is a bad thought. Maybe you don't need a lot of vitality. I must say you need, you. I would need a lot of vitality to be up in the ozone where I'm all omniscient and omnipotent or whatever it is that you are before you decide to come and be incarnated as a human on the planet. You'd have to have a lot of bravery and vitality to choose to come to the earth. I mean, I've been reading the Sunberg book thing, and the way he talks about the veils that came over him, how terrified he was, how, how sick he was at times. It's amazing, but to choose that, you have to have a tremendous resolve and by vitality and perspective that somehow think, think, we've got to think about it. To. Think about it this way, Susan. You're... Yeah. You're, you're, you're tying yourself in knots here over, over something that's just not true. Think what? about it from the perspective of, I'm going to tell you what, think about it from the perspective of how many times I have shared something on this Internet show where I did a worksheet and, and then, you know, it was about something that you know, had been a long time thing in my life and, I'd never told anybody about it, and then I did this worksheet, and then an hour or two later or a day or two later, I'm on the Internet show putting it out there for all posterity, right? And people mm-hmm. say, oh, my God, you're so brave. And I, and I said, listen, I understand what you're saying, that based on how you think about this, I would have to be very brave, but I'm telling you, it's not taking any bravery at all because there's no fear in me about it. Mm-hmm. If I had done this, through the shame and fear that kept me hiding it for 30, 40, 50 years and not admitting it to anybody, if I had gritted my teeth and said, okay, okay, I'm going to share it, that would have taken bravery or courage. But I only share it after all of that's been dismantled. It doesn't take any courage for me to talk about those things. Mm. 
so th- think about it from that perspective, and then think, okay, here's yeah. this person who who is not even a person; it's just a consciousness floating, uh, and there's no floating, but a consciousness without a body <laughs> that, that has bliss as has bliss as their normal state, yeah. and then they get an awareness that even a different level of experience and bliss is possible. And they they have the awareness that there is no danger to them, that who and what mm. they are can't be chipped, dented, rusted, faded, or broken in any way. And they say, okay, I'll go on that ride at this amusement park where the safety mm. ratings are all up. You know, and and I know no one's ever been hurt, and no one ever will be hurt. I'll go on that ride. It doesn't take mm-hmm. that level of courage, right? Mm-hmm. It only yeah. takes that level of courage after the veil drops, right? Yeah. Okay. They don't have it. to have tremendous courage to come and play on in a playground Earth based on all of these reports from these people, you're spinning that in your head and you're, you know, you're talking about how it's going to take so much. And what you do when you do that is create more upset and you make it seem Mm -hmm. harder for you than it needs to be. What all of these teachings, Deborah King, um, you know, the psychologist, the nurse who had her near near-life, near-death experience that I'm hopefully to interview soon, um, Christian Sundberg, uh, other people who've had you know, near-life or near-death experiences, they come back and they say, hey, it's all okay. No need to worry. No need to fret. Mm. What do we do with that? Mm. That's good. Through the veil, we make it seem worse, harder. But it's only through the veil. Right? If you listen to Abraham Hicks and you really listen, right? Abraham as channeled through Esther Hicks. If you really listen to that, what do they say? They say, you who are here in physical form, we love you so much. You are the cutting edge of creation. You, the ones in physical form, doing this through the blinders of the veil, you're the ones who are exhibiting the courage, the determination, the perseverance. Right. You do have to have that uh, down here. You have to have that. You have to have Mm -hmm. that if you keep pouring your mind energy into the interpretation that this is all horrible and this is all bad and this is all dangerous. When you awaken to the realization that it's all okay and this is Mm -hmm. just a ride and you're just here to grow in whatever way you can grow as long as you're here, all of a sudden it doesn't take that. And we don't generate all of the fear that would require all of the courage. We relax. We do what the way of mastery calls us to. We recognize that the way is easy and without effort and that we don't need to do anything. When we do that, 
there, we don't create out of our interpretation of life events the need for all of that courage because we don't generate the fear. And, and when someone mm-hmm. does that, in the moment somebody does that, they aren't they don't need the courage. That's why this exercise from yesterday that we were talking about as I was reading the book is so powerful because it says, look, cancel everything you think you know. Do an exercise that has you look around wherever you are. The first thing your eyes land on, get honest about how you really don't know anything about that. How it came into existence, what it's made of, who was the first person to think of creating something like that. Do that exercise. Why? So you start to dismantle all this stuff that you think you know. Why should I do that? Because it's only the stuff that I think I know that's in error that generates my fear. Take a breath on that. (laughs) Don't, Don't argue against it. Just take a breath on that. What if the only thing that ever creates fear in me is me falsely assuming that I know something that isn't true? When you get right down to, say, a situation of great physical pain, you can have a thought about it. You can say, this is this is great. This is my experience here. But there is the fact right then of extreme extremists, extreme discomfort. I'm taking it to the worst argument, the, the best argument. You know, what about extreme pain in a moment and how long it will be, it will go. The mind is, is probably pretty much shut down. You're in a state Uh, I think that, you know, I was talking on my support group. There are two 83-year-olds in the group, a 77-year-old, and I'm 79, and Tim Ingham is 78. We're we're all looking at our mortality, and the most enlightened among us who went into, this is a very quiet, sober sides man suddenly became very animated. He said, we are not separate and there's no death. There's no death. And it's as if he was experiencing the truth of that. He said, you just got to believe it. There's no death. And he's waving his arms and we, we were all watching this phenomenon. Maybe you should interview him. He's a sketch. But in any case, then a little later, he said, but I am afraid of dying. I am afraid of it. And I think he was just talking about the guts moment of, um, what do they call it? You know, in extremis, however long it will last. And I just haven't digested that and put it into what you're telling me, even though you can probably do it. <laughs> Oh, okay, I'll be quiet now. You can speak. <laughs> speak on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, all I'm doing, really, 
as, as I'm speaking about this, is I'm just coming back to the teachings. Mm-hmm. I'm just coming back to the core teachings, which are we are creating our experience of life by what we choose to focus our conscious awareness on, the thoughts we choose and pour our energy into value. And what these teachings tell us is the actual truth of our lives is there's nothing to fear. Our true nature can't ever die or and and that this is just an experience and we're you know we're going to take from it only our our memories and our the emotions that we generate and it's okay however we want to do it however we want to mm-hmm. use our time now something yeah. like the way of mastery invites us to use time wisely but then several mm-hmm. places within it it says by the way if you don't want to do this we'll be here whenever you're ready we're not going to let it disturb our peace at all. We're going to remain peaceful and loving and arms wide open for whenever you decide to see your true nature and join us here in the recognition of your true nature. So live your life the way you want to live your life. And anybody that teaches you, hey, you better hurry up and get busy, and that that's probably somebody you don't need as a teacher. You're already beyond yeah. them if you've learned to choose for love over fear. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> anybody who's teaching you, hurry up, got to do this now, look out, is somebody who has bought into the fact that you have to do this and that, and that this is more important than that, and that we are separate, and that you know, love has to triumph over evil. You know, love is all there is. There's no love triumphing over evil. Right. Mm-hmm. If you get the teachings at deeper and deeper levels, you recognize any sense of urgency is misplaced. You know what you're doing, Dr. Tim? You are setting us new neural pathways. Every time you have to yell at us again about what's in the teachings, I hope it's getting getting in there. <laughs> yelling (laughs) did you experience that as yelling not really but you get you get animated it's very good I'm not complaining a bit I appreciate it you put a lot of energy into getting us back on track well uh, the, the point I was just making there is that what I'm doing is just coming back to the teachings. I'm not professing to say I've done this and I know and I'm just like, you know, all of the stuff we were talking about with Christian Sundberg and any other true teacher, they don't tell you they've got it, they've done it, they're enlightened, no. etc. No no true teacher is ever going to be telling you about how enlightened they are. Even He's even with the teachings yeah, and and even with the, uh, the the teachings that have been attributed to Yeshua, he says, look, it's even here in the way of mastery. It says, look, I didn't learn. The Father didn't give me this stuff, and then I learned it, and then I said, now I'm doing all this. I say, through me, I don't do anything. The Father through me does all these things. 
Mm. It's not me doing anything. I'm completely helpless. I'm just a conduit for this creative energy. I am not the creative energy itself. I didn't create myself. I didn't give rise to myself, etc. All of these are recognitions in the true teachings, in what Dr. Gruder last Friday was calling perennial wisdom. Mm. That's a good thing to remember. Go ahead. What's a good thing to remember? I was thinking that's a good thing to remember that even he, Jesus, didn't do that. He was just open to the greater truth and energy. I wonder how so he here, managed on the cross, but he did. <laughs> he did it well, even but on you the know, cross. But. Yeah, you, you, you wonder, but you, you don't have to wonder. Uh, you don't have to spend too much energy wondering on it. You could spend all your energy wondering on it. It's okay. You're not going to know unless you get there yourself. Yeah. You know, last night in the support group I shared... <laughs> I shared these thoughts from um, The Laughing Jesus, Religious Lies and Gnostic Wisdom, a book by Timothy Freak and Peter Gandy from 2005. And it talks about how here's a chart of the differences between Gnosticism and literalism. And he mm-hmm. says, Interesting. Gnostics teach that the important thing is to wake up and experience gnosis or the knowing for ourselves. Literalists mm-hmm. teach that the important thing is to blindly believe in religious dogmas. Gnostics Whoa. interpret their teachings as signposts pointing them towards an experience of awakening. Literalists mm-hmm. see their teachings as literally the truth itself. Mm-hmm. Gnostics <laughs> use symbolic parables to communicate the way to wake up. Literalists mistake those Gnostic myths for literal accounts of miraculous historical events, and they end up lost in irrational superstition. Mm. Gnostics know that all books contain the words of men. Literalists believe that the sacred scripture is the word of God. Gnostics understand that the way the wisdom of awakening is expressed must constantly evolve to address the ever-changing human condition. Literalists, on the other hand, want a fixed canon of scripture which has absolute authority for all time. Gnostics want us to think for ourselves so that we become more conscious and wake up. Literalists want us to believe what they believe so that we will join their cult. Mm -hmm. Gnostics understand that life itself is a process of awakening. Literalists believe that their particular religion is the only way to the truth, and they condemn everyone else as being lost in diabolical error. Mm-hmm. Gnosticism is about waking up from the illusion of separateness to the oneness of love. Literalism keeps us asleep in an us-versus-them world 
of division and conflict which is inhabited by the chosen on the one side and the damned on the other. Gnosticism unites us, everyone. Literalism divides us. And yet, in my church, we would, the powers that be, whatever, would be horrified to be called Gnostics. And yet, Gnosticism as you are reading, it sounds wonderful. It sounds like it, the mystic, mystical connection, the promise. Yeah, it is the perennial wisdom, the perennial philosophy. It is the stuff that is true across all philosophies and religions. I wonder why, like Roman Catholicism and Episcopal, uh, the Episcopalians have looked down on Gnosticism as something well, because, that because they're, they're all because, but, but listen, they look down on each other too. <laughs> they're, they're fighting yes. about who's right and who's wrong and who's got the one true teaching. And all of them. Mm. <clears throat> so the reason they're doing it is because it's a they need the power. They believe they need the power. So anyway, just. You know, I realize we're down here to almost the tail end of our time. I'm going to turn on the, the microphone for 760. I just looked up. Does Anne? Yes, it is. <laughs> um, enjoyable, definitely. And I like towards the end because you got some laughter in there. <laughs> Hi, Susan. Hang in there. <laughs> I mean, I am. Um, I, have I'm to, in. Have to, I have to agree with Dr. Tim, though. I mean, it still comes back to our choice, isn't it, Dr. Tim? I mean, what Susan is saying, it's still a matter of her choosing, and it's a matter of me choosing whether I interpret it a certain way or not, right? Well, um uh, that's what the teachings tell us, right? The, what what I choose yeah. as a meaning for something is what's going to create its impact on me, whether right. it's an event right. from the outside or a thought from the inside. Yeah, that's what I'm finding. Okay, sounds good. Hey, good oh. to hear you guys again. <laughs> nice to hear your voice, Anne. Wow. Yeah. Yes, thank you both Anyone? for chiming yeah. in. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll mute you right. so you can stick one. around for the second hour. Blessings. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Kim. And what was the uh, book? Um, come in at the tail end of that, but you were talking about the book that talks about the difference between those two. What was the name of it? That's, that's that, that's a book by Timothy Freak, F-R-E-K-E, and Peter Gandy. And the book is called The Laughing Jesus. The subtitle okay. of that book the subtitle of that book is Religious Lies and Gnostic Wisdom. G-N-O-S-T-I-C Wisdom. I found it. Awesome. All right. Have a wonderful show. Thank you. Well, welcome everybody to the second hour of Mind Shifters Radio.
And today is March the 1st, 2024. Uh, Time is just flying by. (laughs) We'll give Michael just a moment to dial in. And uh, we have started back on reading out of the Enlightenment. If you have your copy, open it up. Um, We are open for taking questions, even if it doesn't have to do with the Enlightenment. So if you have a question, press 1, and it puts your hand up. And we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And I will put a link to that, the Laughing Jesus, in the notes for today as well. So, Michael's not dialed in yet. We'll give him just a minute. Oh, there he is. Oh, I am. I am. (laughs) Well. Hey, sweetie. Welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're here. And do we have anybody in the phone with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room, sweetie? Uh, no, it is all quiet on this end, so go for it. Okay. No questions in the email or from the nope. app? All's clear. All mm-hmm. right. Let's go for it then. So we're back to the Enlightenment book, and we are at the Top of page, we get turned here. Top of page 31. And here uh, the process is described for how the understanding of the Aramaic words that were found in the Kaburis manuscript were verified as accurate when rendered into English. And where that wasn't possible, the word was left in the original Aramaic. And in many cases, it takes a whole paragraph to to bring one Aramaic word into understanding. So a new process was developed to enhance the probability of conveying the Aramaic imagery into the imagery of the derivatives of the Sanskrit without wiping out the psychological understanding implicit in the Aramaic text. In order to explain this process, a clear understanding of the nature of language language should be had. So language is first spoken before it's written so that any language may be summarized as an organized grouping of sounds which permit thought transference between minds. And, you know, if you've done the the workshop communication, did you hear what I think I said? You'll recognize the definition of communication here. That communication is the act of taking a, a construct that I have in my mind, a perceptual structure in my mind, and transferring it intact into your mind. And if you remember, if you listened to that workshop or you were you were part of it, you'll remember that uh, I would used to use the example of defining a word. You know, we're talking language here. If you define a word as a tool of communication, and most anybody uh, would agree that that's what a, a word is, if a word is a tool of communication, it obviously is indicative of an interaction between two. So right now I'm speaking words, you're listening. 
my words are cueing mental imagery dynamics in your mind and if the imagery connected in your mind matches the imagery connected in my mind then we've got communication I'm transferring intact what I have in my mind into your mind but there's a problem with that and that is that each one of us has a past now if if the definition of words as tools of communication makes sense to everybody then notice that right now there are words moving in your mind that I'm not speaking they're tools of communication moving within your mind that are coming from me and if words or tools of communication are indicative of an interaction between two of course the obvious question then becomes well who's in there with you who's telling you what the meaning of anything is and go back to the Course in Miracles I have given this all the meaning it has for me if I'm not living and one of the objectives of this work is to live in actuality not in perception if I'm not living in actuality then perception is a construct in my mind unique to me based upon what certain cueing sounds resonate in me and this ties into the impact of speech all the way across the board you know we've talked about regulatory speech and regulatory speech is literally the energetic pattern of elicited by words that control literally cellular chemistry perception creative process emotions all of those things are controlled by words pretty important stuff and so when you ask the question who's in there with you or I ask that question who's giving you the meaning of what my words are conveying and the objective of the Institute when translating this was to come as close as possible without the who's in there with you being in the way of communication sadly many people use words for anything but communication sadly many people use words to get what they want to control others do all sorts of things other than communicate when we step into the responsibility communication process you know we're moving away from projection communication with that tool projection communication is what I have a reality structure in my mind and I use words to try to convince you that you're responsible for that structure in my mind that's projection communication you know if man is moving in me the average person who is a card-carrying member of the one world universal religion of blame says you made me mad so I'm now using words to try to convince somebody else that they're responsible for what's moving in me and what we want to do is just pure communication we want to take the imagery cued by certain words Aramaic words and make sure that the same imagery moves when the English words are used so again communication 
thought transfer in between transference between mine. I have a reality in my mind, and I want to transfer it intact to your mind. Thus, a language is, among other functions, a vehicle for transporting thoughts and concepts from one mind to another. For psychological studies of the mind, we find that the human mind is particularly adept at organizing complex thoughts or concepts so that they are keyed or cued by a particular sound, visual, or other sensory symbol. Perception of visual or auditory symbols to which thoughts or concepts have been keyed in a given mind causes that mind to perceive those thoughts or concepts if, and there's a big if here, if the mindset or attitude is proper. So in order for, let's say, for, you know, recognizing, you know, we've talked before about the fact that there are basically three filters over intentions in the mind, three filters over the per- perception. Only one filter can be active at a time and then controlling at a time. And those three filters are fear, hostility, and rachma over intentions, fear, hostility, or kuba over perception. Each mindset or each filter determines which data that part of the mind can use in building or showing us what's moving. So if Rachma is active, then only units of intention, only information keyed to love can come to mind. Anything that is negative or destructive will be excluded. If fear is active... then the love is excluded, the destructive is excluded, and what comes forward is the negative. If the is active, then the intentions that come to mind are destructive, and those which are loving or negative are excluded. So, one of the things that was recognized is that the mindset or attitude had to be proper. And when we hear Yeshua and they say, what's most important in the law? And going back to that 11 most important words ever spoken, what was he talking about? He didn't say to love God, love neighbor as yourself. He said to have Rachma when you think of the Creator, when you think of neighbor, and by so doing, you maintain self. In other words, if that gateway is open, then the presence of love is active in you for whatever is going on in the world. That means that the mindset is correct to get the most accurate meanings for what's going on in our world. Obviously, if the thoughts or concepts within a receiving mind are not keyed to sounds the same as in the mind attempting to communicate with us by sound, there can be no communication, nor can there be any complex joint effort by the bodies controlled by those minds. 
This point is illustrated in the story of the Tower of Babel. In the translation of the Kavuras manuscript, foundation scholars were immediately confronted by the fact that they were attempting to set sound symbols, and there's a typo there. The word it shows is that, and it should be thought. So a correction. The word that in the fourth paragraph, second line toward the end, T-H-A-T apostrophe, it should be thoughts. So scholars were confronted by the fact that they were attempting to set to sound symbols, thoughts, and concepts they did not know. Obviously, this was an utterly impossible task. I mean, think of, you know, we talked the other day about the Beatitudes and that the beginning term or, or word in Aramaic is a three-part word, tuvehun, that speaks of a latent neural structure, a neural structure that in most people is unconscious. That neural structure, which is implanted by the Creator to guide us to happiness and well-being, how to bring it out of this latent or unconscious state and bring it into activity. Try and get that out of blessed are they. And obviously there's going to be a problem. So in addition, each foundation scholar respected the wisdom of Yeshua far more than his own or her own wisdom. However, each felt they should understand what was being written down. Thus, each scholar was embarrassed to realize that he must of necessity filter down the wisdom of the teachings of Yeshua to the level of wisdom, which did not exceed his own if he were to understand his own language. Another contradiction impossible to resolve under standard translation practices. So the objective was to get the imagery, the perceptual imagery, to come to mind with a sound in English that would match that which came forward from the Aramaic. And, of course, we've all confronted things, a whole movie out there called Lost in Translation. So... In fact, it's more than just an effort at translation. So Dan, uh, fortunately, was an attorney, and he had an answer. So to overcome these impossibilities, the wisdom of the ages was consulted on how to best determine the truth about that which we do not know or cannot know. In the profession of law, rules of evidence have evolved for many thousands of years with this very object as their motivation and their goal. Consulting the learned of that profession, foundation scholars were informed that cross-examination was the only method developed in recorded history to permit those who do not know the truth to test the veracity of communication. With this in mind, the system was devised to permit foundation scholars to cross-examine the meaning cued by English symbols, which had been substituted for the Aramaic symbols used by Yeshua in his teachings in order to ascertain the veracity of the resulting English text. So that's a really important point, and I wonder if that arouses any thoughts or questions for anyone. So I'm going to pause for just a moment and see if anyone has a thought question about that that keeps us on track with where we're going with this. But has any, is, is, that, is that coming across clearly enough? that it makes sense for everyone. Hopefully, it does. 
And I'm sure Jeannie would be talking to me if there were a hand going up, so we'll continue. And again, at any point that you have a question or anywhere that support is needed, we're here to offer that. Accuracy, in the case of an English equivalent of the teachings of Yeshua, was assumed to exist when the words in the English text triggered in the average English-trained mind reading the Aramaic text of the teachings of Yeshua. Of course, the Aramaic text of the Kabor's manuscript may not present the verbal symbolization of the thoughts and concepts of Yeshua, of Nazareth, as he himself symbolized them. However, it is a perfect certainty that no other language than Aramaic can symbolize them. Aramaic was the language of his home, of his childhood, of his teachings, of his listeners, of his language from the cross. It was the language of Abraham and the prophets. Indeed, Aramaic is the lingua franca of those who best taught the law behind the law. Back about, gee, I'm not even sure now how long ago, 15 or so years ago, maybe a little more than that, we were in Fort Lauderdale, and there was a gentleman there that uh, had been studying my work for quite some time, and he was a member of a synagogue in Fort Lauderdale, and he wanted to introduce this work through his rabbi to the synagogue. And I had a meeting with the rabbi, you know, wanted to meet me, was invited to his home for tea. We sat down. He poured tea and asked me what I did. And I started out telling him about the Kabor's manuscript and that we were working with uh, 164 AD text in Aramaic. And he just got this big smile on his face. This guy was about six foot seven. He was huge. He gets up from the table. I'm sitting there and I mean, I'm I'm not a small guy, but I feel minuscule beside him standing over me. He gets up from his seat and he comes over. And I'd never had a schnuzzle before, but he wraps his arms around and says, let me give you a schnuzzle. Yes, you're welcome in our congregation if you're working with the Aramaic. That was the language of all of our wisdom keepers. And he said, the only thing I'm going to ask if you come and present with your Christian leanings is that you do not use the word Christ to my congregation or I won't be welcomed back in confusion around that term but we ended up doing a week of workshops we ended up doing a adding an additional workshop which we did at the Holocaust Museum in Fort Lauderdale and that was a pretty powerful experience which put me into one of the deepest healing crises I've ever been in. So it was pretty intense. But it was really pretty nice verification when he didn't really need to know anything else about what I was presenting except that it came out of the Aramaic. And, of course, if you listen to the Greeks today, they'll tell you that, oh, no, if you've ever watched the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, you'll remember the father is always talking about, yeah, and it was the Greeks that did it, and it was the Greeks, and it was the Greeks, and it was the Greeks. And they're still doing that with the Aramaic scriptures, which is just bizarre and crazy, claiming that they wrote it down and only they have the meanings. And the concepts and the meanings 
the imagery triggered in a mind that comes from that Greek orientation is just woefully inadequate to even start to communicate what the Aramaic texts communicate. So to throw open the work for cross-examination, the Aramaic text was first transliterated and transposed into phonics using the English alphabet. By this means, anyone could identify the recurrence of a sound symbol whenever it appeared. Underneath each separate sound symbol, the idea, thought, or concept triggered in the Aramaic was noted. Otherwise, not familiar with Aramaic, connected and reconnected to these ideas until the resulting English text was thought by bilingual scholars to trigger the same images and concepts as did the Aramaic. By the way, if you are listening and you don't have a copy of this text, you're welcome to order it. Uh, it can be ordered on our website from our catalog. And if you just order it nor as you might normally order something from our catalog, the catalog is set up in a way that it is automatic and it adds shipping to the uh, to the process. Uh, because we're doing this for this audience, what we've decided to do is we'll pick up the cost of shipping if you want to order the uh, a copy of the manuscript of the the Enlightenment book, and it's twenty five dollars. Uh, we use PayPal for our orders to go through, and PayPal takes a percentage off the top of that, which is equivalent of just a little bit more than a dollar. So if you decide you'd like to get a copy of this, if you go to our website, down at the bottom is a donate button. It goes through, as I say, PayPal. You don't have to have PayPal. You can use a credit card or whatever. If you've got PayPal, you can do that as well. But if you make a donation for $26 and put your name and address in and then it's for enlightenment, we'll pick up and pay the shipping. Just you know, if you want a copy of this text that we're working with. For cross-examination, a postulate was established that each time an Aramaic word appeared within the same sermon or parable, it probably symbolized the same thought. Thus, if that same thought did not appear in the English text, each time the Aramaic word appeared in a given sermon or parable, a lack of textual veracity was suspected and received careful re-examination. For instance, in Matthew 19.24, the King James Version says, And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The breakdown of the Aramaic text indicates this imagery is not supported by the Aramaic. There is no Aramaic word meaning to go in the verse in the Aramaic language. The word gamla is frequently rendered camel's hair by some scholars in translating this verse from the Aramaic. The application of cross-examination technique described above shed doubt upon the accuracy of this rendering. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John the Baptist, John the Baptist is said to have had a coat of camel's hair. The Aramaic word used for camel's hair in that passage was not the same word as gamla. 
Therefore, gamel apparently does not, in this passage, mean camel's hair. Further exploration of the images, keyed by Aramaic words, clarifies the meaning of the verse. At the time of Yeshua, Jerusalem was a walled city with heavy main gates. For night use, there was a small gate left open. It was so narrow. You know, it's, it's like they were inhospitable people. They wouldn't leave somebody out in the wild uh, and not allowing them to come in if they arrived at night. So there was a narrow gate, and one man could pass through that gate at a time. So you couldn't get an army in and, and attack the city. And a camel couldn't pass without difficulty. And while passing was severely confined and frustrated, and of course, a camel was generally used to carry a load. They were transport animals. So if you wanted to come into the city, you had to unload whatever the camel was carrying, and then you had to manipulate and force the camel through the gate, and then you had to carry whatever goods the camel was carrying through the gate. So this small night opening, which was shaped like a hole in a needle, was called kita, Aramaic for needle. Thus, it would appear that the images presented in this verse of the teachings of Yeshua involved a comparison between the difficulties of a camel confined within the narrow space within the night gate of Jerusalem, then known as the needle. A rich man confined within the narrow boundaries of the pathway into the kingdom of love, rather than presented the rich with the inevitable doom, you know, rather than, you know, you're dead, buddy, because you're rich. It's just saying, and, and of course that was used to, you know, fleece people, <laughs> by those who had no integrity utilizing that uh, that idea. But it did speak of the distraction of excessive amounts of wealth that would tend to detract someone from the work of Yeshua, which was the work of cleaning up one's own mind. In order to empower the reader to conduct his own cross-examination of the text, a limited glossary in concordance of the text is included. While the phonic spelling of Aramaic words does not conform to currently followed scholarship, it is felt to be sufficient for the purpose. Because of the use of this method and the employment of cross-examination as heretofore described, the resulting text may be said to have been generated, not translated. Images triggered for the Aramaic mind are approximated to a fair degree by the English text presented with the exception of the few where the concept did not exist in Western thought or excessive confusion was attached to the usual word. So some of the words are left untranslated and then in the dictionary, the glossary at the back, there's an essay that gives a deeper explanation of, of why that word was left in or an understanding of that word or the symbology or the symbolism that was resonated in the mind by it in Aramaic. So when that difficulty arose, that symbol was left in the Aramaic sound, so as indicate a new concept must be acquired if understanding is to be achieved. So wherever that happens, then, and, and basically 
there are some select passages in this manuscript or in this text called the Enlightenment, and it follows the standard King James Version of the Bible, and the key words are left in brackets in Aramaic. And then you can go back into the text and do your own translation. It's a very powerful experience to do, to go through. So this indicates that there are new ideas, new complex concepts that need to be acquired in order to garner any real understanding of what Yeshua was saying in so many cases. One Q, or word left undisturbed, is the Aramaic symbol, nafsha. Appears in English and Greek texts as life, soul, or itself. This word is left in its original sound for all attempts to change it, change it into English symbolism failed. There was just no idea that that you could speak in a word in Aramaic that would cue the same imagery as it would cue in the Aramaic mind. So this would be the new concept or the new um, mental construct that would have to be acquired in order to understand this word when it appeared in the text. So the word is a philosophy involving life, law, cognition, physical health, and the harmony of human actions and affairs with divine origin and active force. A whole big mouthful that doesn't come across with one word. There is no word curing that thought or concept or idea in Western culture, so it is left in its original dignity. An essay considering its apparent meaning appears in the glossary. Another symbol left in the original Aramaic sound is Ruka de Kudsha. Not because its literal meaning is not available, but because of the degree of theological conflict on the concept illustrated. The sound triggers the feminine third unit of the Trinity, denial of which leaves us in unforgiveness. Now, you take that one simple little concept and... Can you imagine how many people over the eons have suffered horrendously because in a fit of anger or what have you, they had done what they considered to be the denial of this idea which was rendered the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine how much suffering people have done by misunderstanding this over the last 2,000 years? when it doesn't say the denial of Rukhata is the unforgivable sin, but rather that the denial of the existence of Rukha leaves us in unforgiveness, leaves us unable to process out the energy that is at the root of our trauma at any given moment. So it's not unforgivable 
which leaves, you know, it, it creates a great opening for minds that are that live in hostility and fear and condemnation to make for a beautiful fear trip around the scriptures, which sadly too many preachers have been doing for too long. In the name of a guy who brought a teaching based in love. Which is pretty weird when you think about it. I remember I was up in Lansing, Michigan. This is way back in the early days I started traveling. So it's 40, 41, 42 years ago. And I spoke for, I was invited to speak, the people who was involved in my work, was a member of the Qantas Club. I was invited to speak at his Qantas meeting. And I did. And uh, the, there was a man there who was a fundamentalist preacher who did the the grace at the meal. And we were introduced, and you know, it was a cordial, nice, hi, how are you kind of thing. And afterwards, I, I asked him if we could talk, if we could spend some time. And the conversation devolved into looking at the meaning of the Aramaic words of Yeshua in their original context. What did he actually say in Aramaic? And this guy who had been a preacher for 50 years, he'd been a fundamentalist preacher for 50 years, and he literally actually said to me, I don't care what Yeshua said. Well, he didn't use the word Yeshua, was Jesus even know his name. I don't care what he said. I got enough understanding out of my Greek texts. It's just mind-boggling. And there are just so many pieces to the puzzle that are, such as this one, you know, changing the denial of this feminine elemental force in us that, by definition, undoes the effects of errors and teaches us the truth without the ability to accept that or to be in tune with that, then we're stuck with unforgiveness. We can't personally, individually move all of the underlying energetic patterns that go into one particular structure produced by the mind of some form of hostility or fear. Without this power, without being able to invite it into activity, without that willingness, then the energetic pattern doesn't move. We're stuck with it. So this is as it's spoken of in Matthew twelve, twenty, thirty-two. And so Ruka de Kutcha is described in John four, twenty-three, twenty-four, as the entity which is part of the Creator and must be worshipped, loved and trusted. And and that comes down to emulated, you know, that idea of worship opposed to we're down on our hands and knees, an ancient idea and under the full control of a deity where what love wants us to do, it would appear, listening to the Aramaic, is to emulate the behaviors that love would do. That that would be a... An, a, a an accurate definition of the word worship. And 
we would change the word. You know, it's only been the last couple of years that it's gotten clear for me in doing this work that the word love is totally and completely misused. We've had lots of conversations about that in this culture and that we are love. We don't do love. We can't love another. Another can't love us. We can be the presence of love with another. Another can be the presence of love for us. But turning that word, that that symbol, into something that describes something we do rather than what we are denies who we are. And so the substitute word there in this passage that it's referring to in John 4, 23, 24 would be honored and trusted. So going to honor, pay attention to, and be in harmony with the guidance from Rukka. And it goes on to say, and, and, and this is that which breaks off the effects of error, teaches truth, and causes us to be mindful of the rules by which we should live and think. And we could we could probably change the word should there to we are designed. There is a, a, a set of principles which keep us on track. You know, we talked earlier about the guardrails on the highway to reason. There are guardrails that keep the mind on track. And this is a power that will bring those things to mind if we are willing to honor it and trust it. With such great importance placed by Yeshua upon understanding Rukha de Kutcha, foundation scholars felt it advisable to use the original Aramaic symbol. Ancient symbolic pictures from Egypt, South America, and elsewhere depict the use or action of four elemental forces in the creation of the universe and all that is therein. Man, augmenting his created sensory equipment with all manner of created devices, has yet to be able to sense or perceive any of these four forces or major energies, which are said to constitute the fundamental energies creative of the physical universe and life. In other words, we know there's gravity because we can observe it in operation. But while there are many theories about gravity, nobody knows what it is. Nobody's ever observed it. They've observed the effects of it, but they've never tasted it or touched it or smelled it or seen it. They have seen the effects of it, but not the thing itself. And so it is with these elemental forces. And it is the same with this elemental force called Rukudikudja. If we were to break that term down again, it would be a feminine elemental force that undoes the effects of errors and teaches us the truth. And you can't know that force directly any more than you can gravity. However, you know, the fact that we've been able to observe gravity and we can trust that it works in certain ways if we do trust it, then we can accomplish great things with gravity. And so it is with Rukha de Kutcha. 
if we are willing to acknowledge by observation we can see its effects we can feel its effects we will be the benefactor of its effects and that then opens a space for us to be able to experience that elemental force in its fullness So as an example, for instance, it's well known that the stars are expanding outward at tremendous velocities from a central point of beginning, despite gravitational attraction, each for the other, which contradicts their outward rush. So we know we live in an expanding universe. You know, the, this new web telescope that's out there now has shown us that, you know, it is an infinite <laughs> um, quantity larger than what we thought. So some immense originating expulsive force or energy initiated your outward journey, and which still continues despite the tug of gravity that's gone on for billions of years. By the way, one of the other pieces of the puzzle that comes in here is to recognize that when we're talking about, and many people are out there, you know, they want seven 24-hour days to be the creation even though the book that they're quoting from says to the creator, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. But no, we want the seven 24-hour days because that fits into a certain theological mindset or maybe I should say a non-theological mindset that denies the truth. So we have this understanding that comes when we can observe the effects of something and begin to trust it and and so what we're trying to explain here is how we arrived at that so man's created mind using created constituents has been unable to locate or contact such an initiating force I mean science has been looking for this thing what's causing this expanding universe this expulsion what's what is it we can observe the fact that it exists by observing the outward flight of the stars. After this originating expulsive force, the coalescence pressure of gravity, the gravity force, acted on the originally expulsed material, bringing the individual units together, and ultimately bringing together clouds of primordial hydrogen into the solidity of the stars and their planets. As with the expulsive force, the gravity force cannot be sensed directly by man's mind. All man can do is reserve its effect and thus affirm its existence. A third force appears to operate in the physical area untouched by the sensing equipment of man. Something associated with heat appears to prevent the orbiting electron or free electron from joining the nucleus of the hydrogen atom despite the pull of the opposite electrical charge. Somebody would say, what's this got to do with Aramaic and the scriptures? Well, what we're looking to do is to use the things we have been able to prove successfully and benefit from to make the leap to understanding those things which, because our sensory apparatus can't touch it, People deny it. People pretend it's not there. People won't interact with it. 
So as you understand how that's developed, it, at least for me, it creates a space for, okay, so there's another elemental force that they were aware of in Aramaic, and even though nobody's ever been able to touch it, no scientist, you know, no scientist has ever touched gravity, but we use it and we know it's there. So perhaps that same force, this third force that's being spoken of, lifted the electron out of an inert neutron so as to form hydrogen. If so, this force is the creator of chemistry and chemical reactions and the father of the, of planet, and the planet and animal life. While undetected, there is no doubt as to it, the existence of this force, for no matter how low we cool hydrogen, or how many electrons we spray on it, or how much we squeeze it, <laughs> the center proton refuses to accept an electron and remains hydrogen, the beginning unit of matter as we know it, the, the first element in the periodic table of the elements. Man cannot directly contact this force, only sense its impact on the material world. Gruca stands for these three forces and various invisible. So, so the term Ruka speaks of these elemental forces. And then there's one that was specifically in Aramaic that was divined for man, Ruka Dekutsha. So this word Ruka in Aramaic stands for the elemental forces, gravity, etc., Invisible, but material forces such as wind, magnetism, and electricity. As Rukha de Kutcha, it represents man's undetectable yet tangible force upon the mind of man, a force from the Creator for that divinely intended for man, a fourth force which man cannot directly contact and, and cannot, as yet cannot perceive fully to exist. So we're inviting a leap for those who can't imagine that such a force exists to recognize that we're steeped in these forces all the time. We just assume. We assume we know something. What do you know about gravity? Nobody even knows what it is. Another symbol, and, and, and you can reason to its function because you can interact with it and see the results of it. If you will do that with Rukudukudsha, she who undoes the effects of errors and teaches us the truth, then you will be able to work with it on a conscious, consistent basis and watch the effects unfold. Another symbol left in the original Aramaic sound is Kenuta, human behavior and judgment, which we would describe as just and fair. This is one of the items in the Beatitudes. It calls for just and fair behavior between people. But in Aramaic, just and fair behavior between people isn't enough. It's, it's a much bigger idea. And, and again, as, as it stated earlier, you have to acquire a new understanding in order to start to grasp what the Aramaic thought was. So justice, 
pardon me, justness is a slightly different concept in Western thought, being a finite measurable result or symptom, whereas kenuta is not only the result, but is also the cause behind the result. So this word looking for just and fair behavior means that an individual mind has to embrace not only the result of it, but that the cause is part of the process. Cause and effect in Aramaic are one. They're not separate. And so you're not just looking for just and fair behavior as a result, the expression of it, but you're looking for, in each case, with with every idea that we're talking about here, we're looking to intimately connect you with what's behind the result, the cause of it. So kenuta is not only the result, but the cause behind the result. It is the judgment and behavior which produces justness as well as the just judgment and behavior produced. So one needs to expand their definition from just looking at, because the mind can effort, you know, trying to produce a result, but because of its biases, oftentimes its results will be crazy. Selfish, self-centered. It came across a See if I can just quickly find it here. Give me one second. Came across this yesterday. It was a, uh, a statement from court case. Just give me a second here to see if I can find it. Uh, Here it is. This goes back to a 1968 court case uh, where the court handed down an opinion and a case against a tax protester. And what it said is, some people believe with great fervor preposterous things that just happen to coincide with their own self-interest. I thought that was a rather insightful thought. And, you know, here in that recognizing that cause and effect are one. We're not just trying to acquire an effect. We're not just trying to make something happen in the world, but we're looking to connect with the unseen, invisible, not directly knowable cause of that result. So it expands to me, it expands. And it's interesting in the Aramaic language, the uh, the word kingdom of heaven can also be translated properly as the kingdom of expansion. So looking to expand into connectedness with the cause of this thing that would be called just and fair behavior, where a mind biased by its own self-interest would want to perhaps not do so much just and fair behavior, but rather do something that benefits itself. Another unique symbol in Aramaic is kuba, K-H-O-O-B-A. And again, the misuse of the word love there. So this would be the filter. 
or the mindset that we're told to have for our enemies. The concept to be cued by Cuba did not exist in Western thought until psychological advances uncovering the controlling force of a set of mind were discovered. This particular, just one second, hold So this uh, filter is an attitude, a mindset, which includes the desire for all-embracing affection for the other and the cue control set which causes what is good about the other to be perceived. So this particular word relates to perception and the building of perception. And what we've finally come to understand is that it's a filter, much like we're talking about the filters over the intentional part of the brain, the frontal lobes of the brain, hostility, fear, Rachma. We've got hostility, fear, and Cuba. And you know, one of the things they asked Yeshua, I said, how do you tell where somebody's at? How do I even tell where I'm at? If, I'm, if I have an unconscious mind, how do I tell? And what he said is, you look at your fruit. One of the things that is the fruit is what is your mind feeding you? That's the fruit of your life. And so if hostility, as opposed to Cuba, if hostility is the active filter over perceptual part of the mind, the back of the brain, that mind is going to be irritated at any object of attention it perceives while that filter's set. There's going to be irritation. So if you've ever been in a relationship with someone and you know they've got rock in the set with you, I, I cherish you, I cherish you, you're wonderful, you're wonderful, and then all of a sudden the hostility filter comes up well, what happened? Why are you so irritated with me? What? Oh, I got it. You remember the one world universal religion of claim and hostility is active in your mind and whoever or whatever you look at, your irritation is going to be projected on them. Okay, I got it. That, that, you can't get that out of the Greek texts. But out of the Aramaic, you can understand that. And then the other filter besides Cuba is... Fear. And if fear is the active filter in the mind, the only constructs that mind can produce are those that are just ready to attack because one is feeling threatened. So hostility produces a perceptual construct based in something being interpreted as threatening about the object of attention. Fear means that the mind will perceive something as, or pardon me, irritating with the uh, hostility filter, something threatening, same object of attention. Now, how does, a, how does a, a, an adult abuse their precious child? If they look at that precious child through the hostility filter then they will feel irritated. If they look at that child through the fear filter, then they will feel threatened. And what most people do when they're threatened is attack. If 
one understands there's a thing called Kuba and is committed to keeping those two filters. They are corresponding interdependent, interrelated filters, Rachma over the frontal lobes of the brain, Kuba over the back of the brain. Then we now have intentions that are keyed to love available as the raw material for our goals. Goals drive perception that engages the back of the brain where perception is stored. And now we have a quality of perception that is based in whatever filter is active. You have a hand up. Oh, great. Let's say hello. Okay. I believe it's Joanne, 205. You're on the air. Hello. Uh, I'll call next week for us to talk about this, but my question, Michael, is if healing my own mind also heals generational things that I inherited. Can that work for another person? I started thinking about my children and their dads. Okay, can you hold for just one second? Can you, can you back that up just a little bit and say that again? Can I heal somebody like a former husband? Well, here, here would be my take is that if I do my work around an issue, I create an energetic space where the other who is tied to that energy through resonance can also heal. Can I heal them? I don't think I can directly demand, okay, now you're going to heal because I've done my work around this. No, no, no. That's but, not what but I can open the energy space for that to happen. And if they have the inclination to move through that, not on this earth plane anymore, but it would work the same way for same generational people. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. I had an experience about, oh, a little better than a year ago where I was doing a still point session. And as I was breathing, I was, and I'll make this quick because we're down to the last minute or so, but I was breathing. And as I was breathing, I was instructed to look downward. So I turned my eyes down, even though my eyes are closed. And I saw this huge field of darkness. It was just more expansive than I could even imagine. And in that field of darkness, there were an uncountable and unfathomable number of lights, small lights. And I asked, what am I looking at here? And what I was told, what I was, that I was looking at the darkness that was surrounded and being carried by my ancestors. And that I was being asked if I would be willing to step in and help to process that energy. Wow. And so by holding that space, yes, I think you can assist in processing out the energy that keeps people in unconscious pain. And as you help to process that out, at the moment where they're willing to move, then they're going to move. I think that's exactly what was described. The next piece I got when I was doing that still point session was I understood what happened with Yeshua in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the, the fear-based mind turns that into something threatening and says, see, you drove in the nails. You, he had to take on your sins and suffer for them, as opposed to the truth of that situation in the garden was out of the presence of love and delight. He said, I can take on these energies and with the presence of my love, I can help to process this pain, this trauma out of the world. And each of us wow. can step in beside him and do that, would be my take. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, I'll That's call what we're designed for. Head. 
Okay. Awesome. Okay. I'll look forward to talking to you again on Monday, dear heart. Blessings. Okay. Bye, Polly. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Take care. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.